welcome back, everybody. This is Scream Sister, your friendly podcast dedicated to spooky movies and spooky books. I am your host, Valerie. And I'm Veronica. It bears mentioning because we don't do it every episode. Veronica and I are actual sisters, and this is a podcast that kind of does a lot of focus on Latino or Latine horror. So we have up until this point been doing a lot of Spanish language horror films, but we do try to branch out and cover other films as well, including many of the classics that I grew up with and classics that Veronica grew up with. So we try to cover the full the full run of it. Ron, I wanted to go ahead and do some announcements up top. It does seem like Veronica and I are going to be at the Texas Haunters Convention in July this year in Mesquite, Texas. So we're super excited about that. I believe the dates are July 14th and 15th. So it's a it's a two-day event. And Veronica can tell you, I have been wanting to go to this convention for years now because what it is, is it's a convention specifically geared towards Halloween enthusiasts, people who run haunts, whether it's, you know, professionally or semi-professionally or just really well done haunts, haunts out of people's homes. And it's also a, a place for like cosplay folks to gather um, and just general people who love Halloween, which is me. So I'm so excited. We've never been able to go in previous summers because it always it always used to coincide with our annual vacation that our families all take together going camping in Texas Hill Country. So this is the first summer that we will get to go and we are going as Scream Sister. We will be tabling at the event. So we'll have things to sell there. We'll also have a backdrop set up where you can take pictures. And of course, our goal is to be talking to people and kind of hearing what they love about the convention, what they love about Halloween, and what they love about, you know, scary movies in general, if they have any favorites they want to shout out. So we're excited about that. And what else? What else, Ron? What's going on in your world? Spent most of today with uh, Sophie over at the College Prep Days event. So. I was actually taking a nap before this started because I was tired. (laughs) She's going to be college bound before long. Uh, I was just telling Ronnie right before the recording started, by the time this episode comes out Monday, True Detective Night Country will be over and I will be in a state of true mourning, guys. It's just been, this is, this has been my beloved show. If you're not watching True Detective right now, you should be. There are people who are, who are very much not into this season for whatever reason. That's fine. I don't, I don't need to hear about it. I am one of the diehard people who is in love with the show right now. So I'm excited and sad that it's coming to an end, but uh, so grateful that I got to see it. This was my first dive into True Detective, so I'm very obviously very eager to go back and look at previous seasons. Okay, well, we can just get right into it because we have a lot to talk about today, and and it's kind of all over the place. So yes. I decided that it would be in our best interest to sort of split up this week and cover some different things because we kind of very... I very quickly realized that we were not going to be able to build an entire episode off of the movie that we had originally picked because of reasons. And we'll get to that. But So we decided to split up. And uh, so I took a look at one movie and then I sent Veronica on assignment to go cover some different movies that were somewhat in keeping with this genre. And then we could just talk about this genre. A subgenre of horror, which is sort of the exploitation realm, or sick, depending on on, there's all kinds of yeah. It's not just horror; it's just right. There's there's black exploitation, yeah, yeah, action stuff. There's sex exploitation, yeah, yeah. So there's a lot to it, Ron. I mean, how familiar are you with the with are you with these films? Because much of this was happening in like sixties, seventies. Yeah, so I was obviously too young in the sixties to actually watch these when they were 
first run in the theaters. I'd heard of the term before, and I obviously didn't know too much about them. I did, did, did to me, they always just my impression of them was just that they were kind of like low budget look would look like something maybe like your friend shot out of his garage is kind of low budget low special mm-hmm. effects nothing mainstream you know not no mainstream uh, actors or maybe even directors just mm-hmm. kind of b level maybe even c level talent and just overly action heavy and violent yes yes <laughs> and i didn't think i did not think i had ever seen any of those type of movies but then and we'll get into the the 20 best list. There are actually a couple on it that I had seen. So See, and I was interested to that I did know not, that. That I did not equate with this exploitation subgenre at all. Yeah. Well, that's interesting because I was wondering if any of those were even going to be familiar to you at all. Like, yeah. A lot of them weren't, but there are some. We'll get into that. What we'll do is I'll talk a little bit about this film first, and then we'll talk a little bit about what Veronica watched this week. So I guess before I launch into the movie that I watched, everyone, it, which is the one that we mentioned last episode, it's called La Mansión de los Muertos Vivientes, or Mansion of the Living Dead. It kind of falls into the, like we said, the genre of exploitation horror. And so we thought, you know, let's give you guys a little bit of a background for anybody who's less familiar with this particular corner of the horror cinematic universe. So I have some notes. As usual, I have some notes. So exploitation film is a type of film that is promoted by exploiting often lurid subject matter. Uh, It can feature suggestive or explicit sex, sensational violence, drug use, nudity, the bizarre, destruction, rebellion, and mayhem. Such films were first seen in their modern form in the early 20s, but they were really popularized in the 60s and 70s with the general relaxing of censorship and cinematic taboos in the USA and Europe. And I believe... I believe I pulled this from, I think it's from fandom.com. Exploitation is loosely defined and has more to do with the viewer's perception of the film than with the film's actual content. Oftentimes, what might be considered an art film would be something that might also fail to pass the Hays Code. So you'd have that turn up at the same grindhouse theaters where exploitation films were usually heavily featured, which I mean, kind of makes sense. Because if you look at like, so the, 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 Resources that I looked at listed some examples like Stanley Kubrick's A Clockwork Orange, Roman Polanski's Repulsion, Todd Browning's Freaks. These were all films that I think are considered classics now, but contain levels of sex and violence and shock that you would typically associate with exploitation films. Ron, did you ever see A Clockwork Orange? I've seen parts of it. I can't, I don't know that I've seen the whole movie. Yeah, I don't and think just, I've ever seen the whole It movie. just seemed very weird to me, and I didn't particularly find it interesting. It was just like <laughs> a bunch of these kind of, my recollection is just kind of sadistic people that were kind of like torturing this man. So I was like, ah, this is not interesting to me. This is, this is not my cup of tea. Yeah. No. <laughs> For instance, talking more about these films that kind of walk the fine line of where they fall, it's been said that if 1962's Carnival of Souls, directed by Herc Harvey, had been made in Europe, it would have been considered an art film. Whereas 1960s Eyes Without a Face, had that been made in the U.S., it would have been categorized as a low-budget horror film, which I think is interesting because 19 Eyes Without a Face, I am familiar with. That is a French language. I would classify it as a French language horror film. I think even abroad, it's classified as a French language horror film. So I, I, I think it's considered that regardless of where it got made. But maybe at the time that it came out, it was considered more art house and they're saying that would had it been made in the U.S., it would have been categorized as that. So anyway, the art film and exploitation film audiences are both considered to have tastes 
that reject the mainstream Hollywood offerings. Like you said, A Clockwork Orange isn't something that necessarily jumped out at you as like, yeah, this sounds amazing. I've never seen Roman Polanski's- Especially not when I would have watched the pieces that I did when I was, you know, quite a bit younger. Definitely would not have appealed to me back then. When did it come out? When did I say it came out? It had to be the 60s or the 70s. Okay. Well, moving on. I'm just going to plow right through. So sexploitation is a subgenre of exploitation films, and it describes a class of independently produced, low-budget feature films generally associated with the 60s and serving largely as a vehicle for the exhibition of non-explicit or explicit, depending on, on how you fall on that, sexual situations and gratuitous nudity. This movie... Uh, Mansion of the Living Dead is directed by Jesus Franco or Jess Franco, which I think is how he's lovingly known in, in amongst fans of this genre. He is listed as a notable sexploitation director, along with Russ Meyer, David F. Friedman, and Carl Monson. Jess Franco is said to be a prolific director of B-movies and exploitation films. He did something like over 150 films during his career. He is now deceased, by the way. Uh, He made a number of films inspired by the writings of the Marquis de Sade, who is where the term sadism kind of originates from. All of that brings me to the movie that I watched this week, which I'm just going to go into real briefly, and then we'll turn it over to Ronnie. But I... I titled this section, guys, I'm sorry, I'm going to speak frankly, but Valerie and the terrible, no good, very bad sexploitation horror film. I just want to just want to concede that, yes, that sounds like I didn't like it uh, and I didn't, but I want to be clear. <laughs> I want to be clear that I wanted to like it. I do think this subgenre is fun and I think that there's a way that this could have been done, that it could have been a very different movie and fun. It had potential that just didn't. It didn't execute. And this is the first film actually that we've ever watched, that one of us has watched that we are just fully not into. And for me, this was that. So apologies in advance to anybody who's a huge Jesus Franco friend fan. We'll go into it. So La Mansión de los Muertos Vivientes, Mansion of the Living Dead, came out in 1982. So that's the year I was born. Ronnie, had you, before I go in, have you ever heard of this film? Before. Never heard of the or film. Or Jess never. Franco. Have you ever heard of Jess Franco? I was going to say, never heard of the film, never heard of the director. Okay. Okay. So, came out the year I was born, directed by Jesus, Jesus Franco, and stars Lena, I don't know how you would say her last name, Lena Romay, Lena, I would say Romay, who was a longtime companion of Jesus and eventually became his wife as well. So, she starred in, I think, a couple of his films or a number of his films. I don't know what to say about this movie, Veronica. I can't unsee it. I will tell you that. It's in my brain now. Um, Well, let me tell you, before you get into the nitty gritty, I had watched the two movies that you had told me to watch. And then I thought, well, let me just check out this movie that Valerie's been expressing many text messages. Concern over over (laughs) many text text messages. messages. So I went to Prime Video to look at it, but it wasn't available to rent. Like you had to, it was like available if you did like a free trial through some. Really? I didn't know that. Something that I'd never heard of. And I didn't want to do a free trial because what always happens is the seven days lapse and I forget and then I'm stuck paying for whatever it is. But I found like the first 10 minutes of the movie on like daily motion. So I watched that and that was enough to convince me that (laughs) yes, no, 10 minutes is plenty. (laughs) 10 minutes is plenty. That's that's weird because I didn't encounter that. So this movie is is supposedly available on Amazon Prime. That's how I watched it. So I'm surprised it gave you weirdness about trying to rent it. But I was going to say, I suspect there may be another more X-rated version of this film somewhere because, and I swear the first time I looked at it on Amazon Prime, it had this poster art. So there's, there's 
the DVD poster art for this film has a girl at kind of at the center and it's like illustration. It's not like a picture of a live woman. It's, it's an illustration of a woman, kind of like your, your horror gothic romance novels of you mm-hmm. know, vintage covers, that kind of illustration. So it's a woman and she's like wearing a very, like a, like a bikini bra and underwear, bikini style looking lingerie, just, you know, scantily clad. So that's what I swear I saw the first time I looked for this movie on Amazon Prime. And then when I went to actually go rent it, I swear to you that the cover art changed. And so there's two different versions of this cover, one where she's scantily clad like that, and then one where she's wearing more of like a baby doll teddy. So she's more covered up. Mm -hmm. And so that's the version I rented. And this version... I just I got the impression from the edits from the choppy cuts of the movie which were pretty rough that there were scenes cut out where maybe there was more explicit sexual content happening and so it just it kind of edited edited that out I, that wasn't in the version I watched which honestly I'm kind of grateful for <laughs> I really want so I mean it worked out fine for me I I, I do like b- before I get into like plot points of it I I want to say that I don't really know what this movie was trying to do but I am going to give it the benefit of the doubt. So what I'm about to say is all me trying to like judge it from a semi-serious standpoint. <laughs> the plot here in Mansion of the Living Dead is an interesting enough premise. Like it, it's a fun premise. It's okay. It's four women coming to some remote looking island space for vacation. And that is one thing to note. And that is one thing that I came up in reading people's reviews of this movie. It's called Mansion of the Living Dead. There's no mansion. It's like a, an abandoned hotel resort where where all of this is taking place. So kind of misleading, but it's a deserted hotel resort. And what we see beforehand prior to the girls arriving for their vacation is there are these creepy looking monks roaming around in robes and, and what look like cheap Halloween looking masks. And we don't really know what their purpose is yet. But anytime, frequently throughout the movie, anytime something bad was about to happen, this creepy monk music would come on. So you would, you would, would, I guess the thing you're supposed to infer from that is that it's these monks doing their chants and they're starting up their rituals somewhere on the grounds. And so something bad's about to happen. So yeah, about 25 minutes in Veronica, uh, the (laughs) tops came off in this movie and then they kind of never went back on. These women were in varying various states of undress for large chunks of this film, including parts of the film where like scary stuff is happening. I mean, this movie was not scary, but you know, parts of the film where they're supposedly in danger or something is afoot and they're just like, I'm going to go investigate completely topless. I'm going to go. And at one point, like <laughs> Lena Romay is completely butt ass naked, just walking down this hallway to investigate a strange noise. And you're like, maybe put on a shirt. Like <laughs> it all goes back to my fear. I have this fear that something terrible, I'll, I'll be- some tragedy will befall me and I will be missing a garment of clothing. Like if, if, like if anything were to ever happen, God, please let me die with dignity and my clothes on. Like I don't want to yes. be found. Yeah. It's just, it goes back to my fear. It's like, if you're about to go investigate a dark hallway where you could potentially get murdered, put on a shirt beforehand, you know, that's not how you want to go out multiple times they're like at one point one of the women is out she's like i'm going to go for a hike and it's not it's not a easy trek at all it's very uphill very jagged rocks and she's in stiletto high heels it's little things like that that just pull me out of it cuz i'm just like this wouldn't this wouldn't happen <laughs> i would never go on a hike in high heels in high heels <laughs> as someone who is just perpetually always cold it's just it's a lot of naked when like that just it couldn't be me i i always have to have like at least multiple layers on even in inside my own house so 
you got to you got to think about those things. You got to think about the fact that you you, you maybe want to die with your clothes on. This movie wasn't scary in any way, shape, or form. And no uh, zombies, right? There were no zombies, and that's the thing. Like, it's a huge letdown because, like, you really want there to be the living dead, and it really wasn't the case. the 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 plot of the movie is these women are on vacation. These monks were cursed by some by a witch, I guess, from a previous life. So one of them, at least one of them, has been cursed and has been alive for all of the, all of this time and so he's i guess supposed to be the living dead and he's in this like cheap looking it like the makeup on his face the makeup that they did for him to make him look quote unquote undead it just looks like he's wearing a exfoliation mask well you know <laughs> i i read somewhere briefly that the effects were so low budget that i guess that effect you're talking about they used dried shaving cream and just put that on that's what it looks, yes, yes. <laughs> it, that's what it looks like, like shaving cream and then like some spot splotches of red for blood. And then so then like at the end of the film, she frees him of the curse. And so she does something. She kisses him like it has to be true love's kiss or something like that. Very Beauty and the Beast, very Disney's Beauty and the Beast. But so she kisses him and he transforms. I'm putting that in quotation marks too because the transformation is she pulls the shaving cream mask off of him. So again, it reminds me of an exfoliation mask <laughs> that she's just pulling off of him and there he is underneath. And then, yeah, he's he's freed from the curse. They don't end up together though. He just sort of, I guess, he's released from the curse and is allowed to actually die and disappear into the ether. So that's kind of what happens, which, which is good because this movie was disturbing in lots of other ways and we'll get to that. But there were things that I read online from people who watched this movie and it's hard to tell if, these reviews were good faith reviews or if these were people just kind of having fun at the reader's expense perhaps but people who are like the the cinematography the shots in this film are so beautiful and very very artistically done and blah 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 and as i was looking at this movie i was like i don't know i don't know are they like i don't really they the movie is very boring it's not very... in the 10 minutes i saw like i said the 10 minutes and i saw sound saw like it was like the quality of someone just taking their camcorder which don't doesn't even exist anymore i don't right. think but you know just taking their camcorder and just following these women it's just it's it's a lot of shots of eerie hallway of scenery you know the scenery of this hotel resort eerie hallways naked women and 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 not a whole lot of like not a whole lot of storyline not a whole lot of dialogue so it's just a very boring film to me personally especially when you look at like b-level horror movies that have done it well in my opinion this this one just doesn't rank very highly for me there is one scene that is the, that I found pretty hilarious, and I don't know if it was intentionally done this way or what, but like it was hilarious, and I cracked up at this point because I was just like, "Good God, what am I watching?" <laughs> so it's it's later in the film. Two of the girls, there's two girls left essentially. The one of them has disappeared already, and the other one, two of them have disappeared, and one of them has just been found floating in the pool. So the two girls that are left find their friend floating dead in the pool, and they come running in to find the hotel manager because the entire time they're at this hotel, there's nobody else there. It's abandoned except for this eerie looking hotel manager. So right off the bat, you're just like, why are you why are you girls even there in the first place? But there they are. So they come running in to find him and to tell him, hey, our, our friend is dead. But he greets them. He's sitting at a desk and he goes, this is the excursions desk. You need to take this over to front reception. And so then the girls, and this, what makes this funny is this is all done in one shot. There's no cut from that to them going to the service desk. It's literally, the scene is, they're with him at the excursions desk. They round the corner where the stairs are, 
and go to the information desk right there on the other side of the screen. And he greets them over there and he's like, how may I help you? And so they're like, oh, our friend is dead. And it's just like that. It was so funny. I cracked up because it was just like, okay, that's the kind of thing that if this movie had played more for funny. And that kind of leads me into like what I think this movie did wrong had it done it differently, it could have been a really fun movie. It, it it wasn't entertaining as a scary film. It wasn't entertaining as any kind of action film. So it's just like it didn't know what it wanted to be. And I guess if there is a version out there where there are explicit sex scenes, then I guess the point of the film would perhaps be that. It would just be a sex film. But without those sex scenes, the rest of this, there is no story holding it up. So it's just a very boring film in my opinion. But had Jesus Franco played this movie for laughs and really leaned into the campiness of it, it could have been it could have been a very funny movie. I don't know if a movie like this could get made today. I hope not because you know, like I'm saying, with the movie exploring things of BDSM, it's doing it in a really soppy way and I think it's ultimately just kind of very degrading to women versus you take a film like 2002 Secretary, which has Maggie Gyllenhaal and James Spader. Did you ever see that run? You're getting a window into what, I guess, a consensual relationship that's exploring those same BDSM dynamics looks like. And it's far more layered. It's far more interesting. James Spader obviously is a fantastic actor. Maggie Gyllenhaal as well. That's a movie that I think approaches that topic in a better way. And like I said, this film, without trying to play for the funny and without doing the serious, the dramatic very well, it just wasn't a good movie. It just wasn't Dude, good. Dude, <laughs> you, you have had a lot of thoughts that I think you're trying really super hard to give a well, uh, try- critique yeah, of the I movie. Am. I would have just been like, this movie sucks. Don't watch it. Well, I mean, and that's ultimately <laughs> what it comes down to. This, I would skip this movie, guys. Don't pay the $3.99 to watch it. But I, I do want to like, I don't want to knock exploitation horror films or, or, or B movie like there is a place for that and it can be wildly entertaining and so I kind of wanted to flip it over to you because I I specifically was like hey why don't you go give some these films of you that I think were pretty popular at the time that they came out I certainly enjoyed them I have I didn't even ask you if you enjoyed them why don't you tell the people what you watched I watched the grindhouse films that came out oh gosh I don't even know maybe like 15-ish years ago Planet Terror which was directed by Robert Rodriguez and Death Terror no yeah Death Terror that was by Quentin Tarantino and they were released I believe as no, kind Planet of like Planet Terror a, and Death Proof wasn't Death it? Proof yeah yes right. that were released kind of as a double feature they actually mm-hmm. weren't that popular apparently when they first came out like the box office numbers you know Which I thought was it I liked them did you like try? them I did I liked Planet Terror was the first one up that showed and that one was kind of, uh, you know, leaned into the the zombie genre. I enjoyed that one. I thought it was, it just like really leaned into the whole over-the-topness of it. Um, and it's got zombies, right? It or had zombies. Something, it, yeah. it had a lot of like campy lines, a lot of things that just came across as like funny. So I think it like leaned into the, the comedic part of it. I mean, it knew it wasn't trying to be a serious movie yeah. at all. I mean, it, like you said, it knew what it was going for. And I think it did it well. It had a lot of over the top gore, some really bizarro deaths, you know, yes. people talking about, oh, don't get infected. Well, there's blood spurting everywhere. I don't know how everybody was not infected, but <laughs> it's the kind of movie where you don't worry about the plot holes because there are many. It's just fun. And they also had this part like like mid mid through the movie where the ragtag group of survivors kind of all converge and, and are taking shelter at like a local local barbecue joint. And then the film kind of looks like it's corroding. Then you just get like a missing reel, apologies by the management, whatever. And then when the movie comes back, 
all of a sudden, like the barbecue joint where they're at is just in flames. Everybody <laughs> looks battered and bruised and bloody. <laughs> Typically shit has gone down. You don't get to see what all, you know, what all went down in that missing reel portion. But I just thought that was fun. Yeah, I was surprised too to read that. I, I, I guess like, I mean, you said it came out like what? 15 years ago or whenever. I I guess I just assumed that because I liked those movies, everyone must like them. I thought they were far more popular than they, I guess, were at the time. At the time. And then the second movie, Death Proof, I didn't like as much. And I think that's just because, I mean, that one's got Kurt Russell, right? Yeah, it has Kurt Russell, this stuntman Mike, who's just Mm -hmm. kind of this stuntman driving around using his stuntman car to kill a bunch of girls. And I think it, maybe it didn't appeal to me as much because, and it still also had some pretty, like, I think the most interesting part of the movie was the way the girls died because it was kind of like, wow, that's pretty Graphic, gnarly. Yeah, yeah pretty gnarly. Pretty, I remember that. Yeah. Pretty gnarly. But I think the rest of the movie, it just was too, you know, leaning more into the more serious side of it mm-hmm. instead of the fun, campy side. I didn't really like any of the girls, especially the second set. I was like, not that they deserve to die. Nobody deserves to die. But like the second group of girls, the one, you know, with Rosario Dawson on it, they like, they leave. There's four of them. There's four girls in each set. He kills the first set of girls in pretty gnarly ways. And like I said, that was probably for me the most interesting part of the movie. Um, you're so, and then you're the, so second, up. the second set of four girls. Those are the girls just, who like seize the day and flip the script and get, yeah, give but it back they're also, to them. They're also the girls that three of them leave one of them, probably the most naive one, alone oh, yeah, with yeah. that. Well, she's collateral. She's with collateral. That, they have with to. The, no, but they leave her alone with this bushy man. She could be raped. I just like immediately, I was like, okay, you guys are horrible friends. You don't deserve to die, but I really don't care what happens to you from this point on. So yeah, yeah, they give it to the stuntman and, you know, give him what's due. But I just didn't like it. And I just didn't like that second movie as much. My much preferred Planet Terror. I can't remember when, so like when this these movies were released, like you said, they were released as a double feature. And I can't remember which came first. I, I thought, I thought, I, I thought Death Proof showed first and then Planet Terror. It might have been um, because I'm pretty sure in Death Proof, chronologically, I think Death Proof happened first because mm-hmm. I recognized the female doctor, Josh Brolin's wife in Planet Terror was is in it, Death is Proof it, and her father. Josh Brolin's Josh wife? Brolin? Josh Brolin. From like, oh, you remember oh, he was the older? doctor in Planet Terror, the one that was. Oh, okay, okay. Well, when you say you you mean his wife in real life or his wife? No, in the movie? his wife okay. in the movie. Okay, I was like Diane yeah, Lane. Was that? Sorry. That was a Diane she was, Lane. Well, no, 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 no. But in real life, he was married oh. to Diane Lane at one point. They're divorced. No, whoever now. the actress was who played his wife in Planet Terror gotcha, also gotcha. Okay. also appeared in Death Proof after after Stuntman Mike has offed the first mm-hmm. set of four girls and he's in the hospital because he also. Suffered some injuries. Uh-huh. She's a doctor in that hospital. And then her father uh... also shows up. He's the lawman. So yeah. So they must have happened first because yeah. that ain't happening in Planet Terror. Zombies are running amok. Yeah. I mean, like I, I liked them both. But I yeah, <clears> I <throat> seem to recall that Death Proof came first because I remember thinking it it doesn't, it didn't feel fully fleshed out. Even though I think it ultimately, like the runtime was probably comparable to Planet Terror. It just almost felt mm-hmm. like the short movie that you watched beforehand, before the main feature. So I kind of treated it in my brain as that. But yeah, I mean, I I didn't not like it. But and I, and I, you know, yeah, the the gnarly death scenes in the beginning. That's what kind of movie we're we're in for. That's cool. And it took too long to get to that point. I was like, you know, the whole first part of the movie is like these four, I don't know, twenty something girls just at a bar drinking and. Like, none of that was interesting to me. I was like... In Death Proof, in the beginning, that blonde girl that he 
that he offs. Is that Rose McGowan as well? Mm-hmm. No. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But she was so not playing Rose... the same character yet. Right. Right. Yeah. Okay. Obviously. But I could I couldn't remember if that was also her. But all in all, like that's an example of a film that is obviously and so much of Tarantino's and Rodriguez's filmography in the '90s was very much a nod to exploitation films. I was thinking about Robert Rodriguez's El Mariachi, Desperado. From Dusk Till Dawn, like all of those were Mm -hmm. very, you could tell that they're heavily influenced by this genre. And those are examples of films that I think were fun. They did it well and and kind of- Better than La Mansión de los- Oh my God, world's better. World's (laughs) better. And I don't know, like, like I said, Jesus Franco has apparently done a ton of movies and maybe some of them are better. I don't know. Like he apparently has one called The Bare-Breasted Countess. (laughs) Yeah, no. But maybe it's a really great movie. I don't know. Ronnie was looking at a, there's a bunch of lists that we've got linked for you guys on like best grindhouse movies, modern exploitation movies, because there are like movies like X, Pearl, you know, that whole X franchise, Triple X Maxine, all of those movies with Mia Goth. Those are, again, also movies that are heavily influenced by this genre and are examples of movies that I think are really well done and really kind of elevated a little bit. I think Mia Goth is amazing in those films. So Ronnie's going to take us through one of those lists here in a minute. Before we close out on Jesus Franco, uh, like I said, he was heavily influenced by the writings of Marquis de Sade. We are going to link for you guys a place where you can go and do some more reading on him. Uh, He was a French nobleman for whom the term sadism kind of came about. He was known to engage in acts that I certainly would consider to be assault primarily because, and we're not going to go into these cases, but primarily because if you go in and you read about these individual instances, incidences that he was caught in and scandalized over, it's all people of, it's very predatory. He was very predatory and he preyed on people of low wealth or people without privilege in some way. And it was just pretty clear how devoid of consent these experiences were. And so in my opinion, a very bad guy to uh, be looking at for influences in your work. But again, if you're if you are into things like S and M, there are I'm sure films out there that do a really great job of it. I tried to I tried to look for films comparable to Secretary. I couldn't really find any like that. And it's granted, it's been a while. It came out in 2002. It's been a long time since I've seen that movie. Maybe it doesn't hold up as well as it seems to in my brain. But I remember it being a very interesting movie, thoughtfully done. And so, but yes. Skip this movie, please. Don't watch it. And if you are a big Jesus Franco fan and you have a recommendation for one that is far better, don't be shy about shouting that out to us because I don't mean to bash a director that apparently made so many films and and is, I think, probably well-liked amongst people who are big fans of this genre, so I don't mean to trash all over it. You want to take us through the the list of the movies that are that did this genre justice and do it do it proud? Okay, so this was a list of, came out on SlashFilm.com, was a list of the 20 best Grindhouse movies ranked. And of course, this is all dependent on whoever wrote this article's opinion, obviously. But in going through that list, and again, before I read this list, I was of the opinion that I had not never really watched any exploitation films. But I have. Um, (laughs) And so interesting to me, coming in at 19 on the list is a movie from 1975 called Race with the Devil, which Mm -hmm. I actually did watch. When I was a kid and I must have been, you know, looking at when it was, I'm sure I didn't watch it in 75, but at some point I watched this movie on television and I don't recall because like the article mentions that like the three big, the three big G's of exploitation films, the way you can kind of spot them out in the wild, so to speak, is the three G's. They have gore, 
grime, and genitalia. Um, <laughs> now, when Race for the Devil, I don't remember a lot of gore. I definitely do not remember genitalia. Of course, I was watching this on television, so maybe it had been maybe modified. Out, right? Yeah, maybe it had been modified. But all I really remember about this movie is there was a satanic cult and the dog dies. Oh, so, no. So I don't recall any nudity or anything like that. But I Who, who were the people in it? Peter Fonda and Loretta Swit. Yeah, yeah. Lipsoon Hello Mash. And I don't remember who the other people were. But it was like two couples traveling in an RV. And this mm-hmm. happened in Texas. So the satanic cult worshippers, apparently all over the backwoods of Texas in the 70s. But so I have seen that one. Then coming in at 17, number 17, uh, and I'm not going to go over every single movie on this list, but I'm um, yeah. just going to kind of hit the ones that kind of piqued my attention or that I have seen. Uh-huh. Uh, coming in at 17 was a movie from 1974 called Black Christmas. Oh, have, yeah, yeah, yeah. Have not seen it and had never heard of it, but was a Canadian film or is a Canadian film and apparently kind of preceded the Michael Myers and the Jason Voorhees of the world. So it was kind of the slasher film that according to this article kind of gave rise to the slasher film as we know them today. So just based on that, I'm kind of Mm. curious to watch this. Then coming in at number 14 is a Spanish film. So I don't know, maybe one to maybe keep in mind for the future for the podcast. It's a movie from 1978 called Satan's Blood. Satan's Um, Blood. Was a Spanish exploitation film. Apparently was called Fiendishly Fun and dubbed as the Iberian Rosemary's Baby, which you just oh, recently saw Rosemary Baby. So <laughs> I don't know. So that one, you know, some curiosity there for me as well. Coming in at number 13, a movie that I did not watch, but I have heard of, The Five Fingers of Death. And this was kind of martial arts, you know, yes. kind of one of the exploitation films that leaned into the martial arts scene. It's one of two kind of martial arts exploitation movies on this film. The other one, I believe, was Street Fighter. People that are kind of interested in those old Kung Fu martial arts movies. Might and be worth and would obviously out. go on to inform movies like Kill Bill. And then coming in at number seven, Death Race 2000 from 1975, kind of set in a dystopian world. Uh, America has fallen under a totalitarian regime and kind of just for whatever reason features this race across the dystopian countryside. And then coming in at number six, we've all seen it, 1978's (laughs) Halloween. I did not consider that an exploitation film, but I guess it is. It's got well, the, it's, it's got naked people. It's yeah, got, it's got topless cool <laughs> women. Some really not so much gore. You don't really see like a lot of blood, but no violent but deaths. Violent deaths. Violent deaths. Uh, do you think definitely an independent film? When did uh, Friday the Thirteenth come out, and would that be considered exploitation horror? It would have come out. There was a couple having sex. I don't think. I don't know that anything was actually shown, like nudity wise. There's I don't no remember. nudity. It would have come out around the same time as Halloween. You know how Hollywood yeah, works. Yeah. Something comes out and it's popular and then they immediately go and try to duplicate it. And then coming in at number five, came out in 1977, called The Psychic, but was also released under the title of Murder to the Tune of the Seven Black Notes. Oh, interesting. That does sound fun. I don't know if it's fun, but it just sounds interesting. Um, <laughs> it it's may, about a lady. It may be terrible. I think it was a foreign film, a woman who's kind of remodeling a home and finds the the body of a dead woman in the walls. And so it kind of, yeah, that's kind of the base of the movie and it goes from there. And then coming in at number two and number one, number two, 1978's Dawn of the Dead. And yep. number one, 1974's The Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Which I was trying to, because I have seen that one. It's been so long since I've seen it. Um, and I've seen was, a few different versions of it at this point. I, I, I would have makes. to go back and rewatch it because I don't remember. I mean, there's gratuitous violence for sure, but I don't remember gratuitous nudity or 
sex stuff in that one, but maybe actually, I, don't, I, don't, I don't think all three of those elements have to be in there. I think there um, need to be genitalia. <laughs> <laughs> I can actually do without that. Um, you know, leave that to the imagination. But I think as long as there's like gory deaths, violent deaths, the suggestion of profanity, of a lot of profanity. <laughs> yeah. I also saw on this list is a Pam Greer movie, uh, Coffee. I think it's called Coffee, which came out. Mm -hmm. I'm scroll. I, I don't know where I saw it, but Pam Greer in a number of movies, I guess that would fall within the the black exploitation uh, mm -hmm. subgenre. Jackie Brown and so just Foxy Brown, yeah, at Shaft, like Shaft. a lot of those films. Shaft. So black exploitation was also a, a subgenre within exploitation films. And there's a lot to be said in terms of like, this is what I'm pulling from Wikipedia. It says, after the race films of the 40s and 60s, the genre emerged as one of the first in which black characters and communities were the protagonists rather than sidekicks or supportive char characters mm -hmm. or victims of brutalities. The flip side of that, though, is that there, are, there were people, there were voices, notably within branches of the NAACP that felt that these characters, these storylines sometimes did more harm than good in terms of perpetuating perpetuating harmful stereotypes of people in the black community. So it's interesting though know. to see how perspectives can change. I I'm wondering if that would be the the same stance now because I'm trying to remember which movie it was, if it was on this list or one of in one of the other articles mm -hmm. that you sent me, but there was a movie it would be interesting to see if those opinions would still hold because in one of these articles, and I can't find it, of course, right now, but there was one of the one of the exploitation movies that kind of features a female as kind of the subject of the movie. Mm -hmm. And at the time it came out, a lot of critics, including some female critics, panned it as being, like you said, not not uplifting of female characters. And, and the article or the little brief blurb about the movie said how those opinions have changed since then so that you know at the time when it came out it was like oh you know this doesn't showcase women in a positive way but as mindset of maybe what female empowerment can look like it doesn't mm -hmm. have to look a certain way yeah. um the opinions of some of those same female critics has altered has, and has so altered. it's not the same so yeah i mean i can see that and i think like with a lot of films in the black exploitation genre i think that they are by and large much beloved now than they are like Pam Greer is a f you know phenomenal icon that made a, a very big career out of doing these films the shaft you know that's another example of something that it, that has also been rebooted in in more mm -hmm. recent years so it's just like i think these are beloved stories and have certainly become kind of cult classics in their own right in through the through the course of time but yeah were controversial at the time that they were coming out as so much else was in this particular genre of film i guess maybe if there isn't a lot of like you know nudity or, or specific shots because that's the other thing like i was noticing in the grindhouse movies the mm -hmm. death proof and planet terror is you know the constant camera focusing on like the women's butts or, or right right, right. yeah of, you know body parts as, as opposed to like the whole person and so I guess, you know, in my mind, I have that kind of stereotypical idea of that that's what an exploitation film is. It's just kind of leaning heavily into the sexuality of it or um, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. objectifying females, you know, right. but there's different kinds. There's the, you know, it, it can be just action heavy. It could just be, you know, a lot of violence, a lot of gore. It doesn't always have to include sexual part of it. So yeah, it's just well, been interesting to, to kind of discover that it's, it's this broader umbrella. There are a ton of really great films in this category. Like on that list alone, there were a number of them that 
Halloween is one of your favorite movies. I think you're all, I think you've also said that Dawn of the Dead. Have you seen Dawn of the Dead? Yeah, I've seen all yeah, those zombies. Yeah, so I mean, I th- a lot of these films are are you can totally buy into it and and just go on the ride and have a good time. Every little subset subgenre can you know have a little something in it for you. This week, in addition to watching La Mansion, I also watched Bride of Frankenstein. So this is my first time to see Bride of Frankenstein, and then there's a lot to say about it. I have like some little trivia that I thought would be fun to share with folks. So if you haven't, if surely people listening to this podcast are very familiar with this movie, but in case anyone's not, just a reminder, it came out in 1935, directed by James Whale, once again bringing back Boris Karloff in, in the role of the monster. It also stars Elsa Lanchester, Lanchester, who's pulling double duty in this movie because she plays the bride of Frankenstein, or the bride of the monster, and she also plays Mary Shelley at the beginning of the film. So and I'll kind of talk about how that works out in a minute, but she also... Elsa Lanchester would go on to do a number of other movies, including Mary Poppins, which came out in 1964, and 1973's Terror in the Wax Museum. So yes, where this movie picks up, it, it starts with Mary Shelley is now sitting around a li- the living room, whatever, with her husband and her friend Lord Byron, and she's become this big literary success through her story, Frankenstein. And so Lord Byron is basically telling her the world needs more. You know, you can't be done telling, you can't be done with this story. You can't be done with these characters. We need, we need more from, you know, your genius. And so she says, well, sit down because the story does go on. And so she, it's kind of seems like it's going to start from like a narrative place like that, where she's telling them the story of what happens at the end of Frankenstein, the 1931 film, I believe it's 1931. There's like a, fire at a windmill and it's presumed that the monster has perished in the fire. Well, this film kind of picks up right where that left off and we immediately learn that he didn't perish in the fire. He survived. And so he's going on this kind of interpreting as like a, a killing spree. He's just sort of on the rampage and and I don't really know if he's looking for something in particular. He's just, he's angry. He's a monster. The sequel, Bride of Frank, it's decidedly funnier than the original. So this one has more of a comedic take. And apparently, director James Whale did not originally want to do the sequel because he kind of felt that like there wasn't any way that they were going to be able to top the first one. So he really had to be coaxed into it. And so one of the things that he kind of decided going in was that he was just going to make it a hoot. He was, I guess, going to play into the funny of it. And so he went through like a number of different writers trying to settle on a story idea before landing on the one that they landed on. So, um, and again, this is what I'm pulling off from resource notes, but in the novel, Frankenstein created a mate, but destroyed the mate before ever bringing it to life. So I think the goal was to kind of find a story there and go with that. Boris Karloff uh, objected strongly to the monster being able to speak. In the sequel, the monster is kind of given limited vocabulary through a blind man that he comes across that befriends him. And so Karloff kind of felt that giving the monster speech took away any impact or charm that he had. And that the moment you gave him speech, Karloff said, you might as well play it straight. So, and I do kind of agree with that a little bit because like what one of the things that I, I think I touched on when I watched the original, the first one, Frankenstein, you really have great empathy for the monster. There's a, there's a level of humanity that comes across in Karloff's performance that is really beautiful and vulnerable and tragic. And the minute you give him speech in the sequel, it's, 
it's funny and it's kind of campy. So I do kind of agree that you you lose that tragic appeal that the monster had in the first one. But it's still, there were still good moments of vulnerability in this one because Boris Karloff really does play this role so brilliantly. So you still have some wonderful moments in this film as well. Another fun thing, Elsa Lanchester in her bride garment, which even if you haven't seen the movie, Veronica and listeners, you're probably very familiar with the costume, the hair, and like she's like the sheet. So in her bride garment, she said it was such an ordeal trying to do anything because she's kind of like, she's all wrapped up in bandages, kind of like a mummy. And then she's got like a what I look like, it looks like a white sheet over her. So she said it was such an ordeal to try to do anything like go to the bathroom all wrapped up like that, that she just like didn't bother with things like hydrating. She's just like, I didn't even bother drinking anything because it was just too much of a hassle. So one of the things that I really enjoyed watching the film were the scenes towards the end of the movie where the the mad scientists are bringing the bride to life because you really just sort of, you kind of get that mad, this is where that aesthetic comes from, the mad scientist laboratory where, you know, the shadows cast over Dr. Frankenstein's face and, you know, the lighting and the sound effects, it's all, it's, it creates that very evil science layer aesthetic that I think many Halloween lovers and go for and gravitate towards. And it gave me inspiration because like this year, one of the things that my kids really want me to do is bring back in previous Halloweens, we've done a haunted garage and we've gone all out and decked it all out. And it's been like quite the attraction in the community. My oldest wants to bring that back this Halloween. And it kind of gave me inspiration. It was like, well, maybe we'll do like an evil scientist laboratory and go for that theme. The Bride of Frankenstein sequel is even more beloved than the original. It seems to be the one that is that has prevailed as being the more popular one. And if you go to like, I think, I don't remember if I linked it for you guys, but we will, uh, a link of like top 10 or so Frankenstein movies. Bride of Frankenstein is listed as number one ahead of, and I don't even know where Frankenstein, the original falls on the list, but Bride of Frankenstein is listed as number one. So I think by and large, people love this movie even more than the first one. But I would, I kind of would say I, I kind of prefer the first one just because, you know, I'm real big on origin stories. So I'm always real big on like the first movie as being of any particular film franchise as being like the, the one to covet because that's the one that birthed all the other ones. And I kind of liked that it went more for the classic traditional horror aesthetic. I think they need to be watched as a set. So I think that to love one is to love them both. I think you should give it a watch if you haven't seen it. Also, my movie watching time is pretty limited, so. Also, like for the record, Friday the Thirteenth is on HBO is is on Max right now. So, and I've been I've seen it now for a couple of weeks, and I've been like, I should sit down and watch that because I love the Friday the Thirteenth films, like the original, I, the very first one. Yeah, I've seen more Friday the Thirteenth than I had like Nightmare on Elm Street. Like now I've seen many a Nightmare on Elm Street because of this podcast, but prior to this podcast, I hadn't seen any of the Nightmare on Elm Streets as as you all know, but I have seen a number of the Friday the 13th and I, I like those movies. You know why? I like camp horror. I like horror that takes place at a camp. Like for me, yeah. that's just quintessential, that that particular line of storytelling. I'm, I'm automatically in for that. Woodland horror is fun horror to me. Okay, coming up. In since we're already, can you believe we're already coming to the end of February? It's crazy, it's ridiculous. All right, but coming up in March, book club 
podcast episode, we will be reading The Devil Takes You Home by Gabino Iglesias. So get a copy of that if you can. Get it from the library. Listen to the audiobook. I'm getting mine from the library. Probably I already checked. They have a copy of it. So I will be checking that out. So you guys have, if you haven't started reading that already, you've got about a month to go. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Prior to that, though, we have one more film discussion episode before book club episode. And so the next film we're going to be watching for the March, our March 4th episode will be Tigers Are Not Afraid, directed by Isa Lopez. So, I mean, for those of you who have been enjoying True Detective Night Country and are devastated as I am that it's ending, take solace with us. Be comforted by the fact that our next movie that we're watching is is by the brilliant Isa Lopez. It's like I said, Tigers Are Not Afraid. Um, here's a little bit about the film. I was going to say, what's it about? It's uh, listed as like horror fantasy. So haunting Hmm. horror fairy tales set against the backdrop of Mexico's devastating drug wars. Tigers Are Not Afraid follows a group of orphan children who are unexpectedly given three magical wishes. As they run from the cartel that murdered their parents and the ghosts that haunt them, they must decide how to use this special gift to save their own lives and the people they love. I'm very excited about it. I believe that this is available for rent on Amazon Prime. She has rapidly become one of my favorite directors. So I'm super excited to watch this uh, earlier effort, which I think this came out in 2017. Well, it's got to be better than the last movie you watched. Anything's going to be, I mean, and see, like that's, that's what makes me feel so great. Coming out of Jesus Franco's world and running and running full speed into (laughs) Issa Lopez's world. So Seriously, man, I was watching those first 10 minutes. I was like, oh no, 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 no. You know what would have made it so much better? Zombies. Zombies would have vastly well, I improved. I thought there going to be zombies in there. <laughs> zombies would you know, have vastly improved. You know, false advertising, <laughs> false propaganda. Pura yeah. historia. So, yes. Those are our next two episodes, guys. Tigers Not Afraid on March 4th, and then The Devil Takes You Home on March 18th. All right, friends. Well, we will see you again very soon. Bye. Scream Sister is a Nest production hosted by me, Veronica, and Valerie. Editing by Valerie. Music by Omar Chapur. Production support by Lorenzo Villarreal and Alex Street. Listen to new episodes of Scream Sister every other Monday, and don't forget to give us a rate and review. It's the best way to help us grow. everyone. It's Valerie. Thank you so much for listening to Scream Sister. I wanted to take a few minutes to let you know that I wrote a book. Soil of the Gone is my first published story, and it is available now over on Barnes Noble, bookshop.org, and on Amazon. It is a ghost story passed down through generations of my own family, and it has now been reimagined as a brand new tale that debuted in October of last year, but is now available for you to get in a multitude of places. So a little bit about it. 
Martha has her family and a life she's very secure in, but traumatic dreams that she can't explain start happening. And soon after a day of work in a family cemetery, a supernatural terror is unleashed on her and the ones that she loves that will go far beyond anything they could possibly imagine and change their lives forever. If you are interested, please pick up your copy. Like I said, Barnes and Noble, Bookshop, or Amazon. Ebook available over on Amazon. And thank you so much. Bye.